John chapter 7, verse 32, it's the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And Jesus is in the midst of the temple, and he's been teaching. He's being confronted by the religious leaders at this time. And so we'll see as we get a little further along how the Lord is going to use the things of the Old Testament, the Feast of the Tabernacles, in order to illustrate who he is. It's what we do as we study the Old Testament. We get into the Old Testament and we see these concepts, and we see how they're fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now earlier in John chapter 3, Jesus had told Nicodemus that he must be born again. The Apostle Paul, he tells us what has occurred at the point that we were born again. Now, the born again is not a process. It's a matter of hearing the word of God and surrendering ourselves to the word of God. But once we do, it's instantaneous. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there are changes that occur at that moment. There's the immediate spiritual, you have gone from being a product of the world to a child of God, and there's the gradual physical, there's the lifestyle changes that happen, the relational upheaval, people that you were so close with now shun you, there's the new relationships that you develop as you come into the body of Christ, and there was that great period of change in my life, and I'm sure every one of you who are born again here tonight have experienced that, that great change that has occurred as you've given your heart to Christ. And so just as all things become new, all things are seen from a different perspective as well. You view the world differently, and just as importantly, the world will view you differently. And that's what we're seeing here is a clash of cultures, if you will, between the Lord, the saved, and the unsaved. They're really all represented here. If we back up two verses in chapter 7 to verse 30, it says, therefore they, the religious leaders, sought to take him, sought to take the Lord, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31, and many of the people, these are just people in the crowd, believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? And so the crowd, the crowd at this point we're seeing here in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring. They're murmuring because people are believing. The idea is there's an amazing thing going on here. There's something going on that is undeniable. And you can ask, well, really, what's going on? There's Jesus preaching, there's apparently people getting saved, and there's a religious thing. Well, can you imagine, I pointed this out last week, but just a reminder today, to hear the word of God from God, can you imagine the power that must be radiating forth from that teaching? Now, there can be inspired teaching today, without a doubt, because it's all through the Holy Spirit, but I can just imagine as Christ stood up in that temple area and spoke those words, they had to be so powerful, most powerful. And so again, the crowd is murmuring. It's probably of those who are believing and those who are wondering what is going on. Now, the unbeliever will not necessarily see you as turning to Christ, but turning away from them. And that's what the religious community is seeing. Because again, think of their mindset. This was a big money-making opportunity. You know, the, the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, 
the World Health Organization said that they should be relocated or they should be canceled. Notice they haven't done that. Why aren't they going to do it? They're not going to do it because too much money will be invested. And so apparently it's more important to make the money than concerns with worldwide health. Well, it's the same thing. The religious community was making money off the people. But now here's this man who's preaching just simply a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that's being the case, they're not too happy with these things. Again, the world, the world is not too happy when you leave their ways and you go according to God's way. Because when you do go that direction, and I, I experienced this in my life, it wasn't so much that I said that they were wrong with what they were doing, but there was that conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is a person gets right with Christ and starts living their life in a manner that is in line with Christ. As we start doing that, just that simple action is going to be conviction of the world. Certain things that you no longer involve in. For us, we stopped drinking and we were going to church. We were going to church a lot more than the rest of my family was going to church. And, and really, just our whole lifestyle change. Well, that within itself is going to be a conviction. Because as light comes into darkness, the darkness just simply does not comprehend it. So the Sanhedrin decides that they need to take him or they need to arrest him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. They need to take him, arrest him for the purpose of killing him. That's their intent here. It's what the unbeliever attempts to do. And you should have been able to experience this as well. Because just as people are coming to Christ here and they're seeking to kill off Christ, Same thing, they'll happen in our lives. As we come to Christ, they see that change within our lives. There's the conviction in their lives from the change of our lives. And what do they try to do? They try to kill off Christ. They try to drag you away, pull you away, maybe debate or argue or whatever it might be. But there's that attempt to kill off Christ. Because if they can kill off Christ in you, then the conviction will go away. They're not understanding, they're not understanding how it works, but the fact of the matter is, as they see Christ in you, there's that conviction. I know that because there was the conviction in my life, the relationships that I had of people who came to Christ. Again, just that simple fact, that simple fact of somebody coming to Christ is a conviction within their heart, and the only thing they can do, it's against the law, so they probably won't kill you, but what they'll attempt to do is to kill Christ off within your life. Verse 33, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I shall go to him who sent me. If you do the math, you would know that a little while longer would be six to eight months. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's a fall feast. Passover is a spring feast. It's the coming Passover that the Christ is going to be crucified. But the point here is, even though they've made this plan to kill him. Now keep in mind, the Sanhedrin, they're in control over all the governing authorities, and they can manipulate the Romans, so they have this ability to arrest Christ, and as we've seen, we'll see in six to eight months, to arrest him and to put him to death. So they had that ability, but the fact of the matter is, it's not the time yet. The point is, God's people are invincible until the day of their appointed death. And God's got the day of all of our appointed death. It's what the psalmist was crying out. 
King David. Now, if you read throughout the whole psalm, Psalm 39, he's wanting to be motivated in ministry and the things that God wants him to do. But he asks God in verse 4, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? And he's wanting to know this for the purpose of motivation in what God has called him to do. Now again, if I told you, and I say again because I brought this up once before, but if I told you that you had five years to live, what would you do in that five years? I know what I would have done in the world, but what would you do as a born-again believer? What would you do? Somebody asked, I think it was R.A. Torrey, that question. If you had five years left to live, what would you do? And he said, I'd study the Bible for all I'm worth for those four years, and in that last year, I would go out and give it my all. You know, all for Jesus. Giving it all for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the idea with the psalm. It's not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, but just the things that God has called him to do. Lord, teach us to number our days, that we would see how frail we are, that we would know that time is truly of the essence. You have Zebedee's sons as a contrast. James, James, his time was short. John, he was the longest of all the apostles. These were two brothers, again, the sons of Zebedee. They were always together. They're always together, and they seem to be part of Christ's inner circle. When they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Peter, James, and John. And they seem to always be there, always be there together. And so you kind of have the mindset that this is what's going to be long-term leadership. But James was the first one of the apostles who were martyred, and it was pretty close right at the beginning. Why would the Lord do that? I don't know. I don't know why the Lord does certain things. I don't know why the Lord takes one life and leaves other lives. It's, it's a great mystery. It's that which truly touches our hearts to such a degree that it tests our faith. And as it tests our faith, we understand that God is the Lord of our lives. There's no doubt about that. But even more important, he's the Lord of our death. And, and again, it, it's a hard thing to comprehend, a hard thing to wrap our, our minds around. For me, it was, it was a learning experience in this as I saw my father pass away. But as I saw my father pass away, I, I saw the great work that God did in, in his death, and it was, it was an amazing thing. Now, I, I wish I had my father with me. I wish I had, I mean, I probably had hours of fellowship with my father in a safe state. And I, I, I so longed to have fellowship with him, just to have the conversations with him and the Lord and the things of the Lord, to be able to experience that new man, just would have, or that changed man, would have just been an amazing thing to me. To be able to have him sit here in church, and my father never sat in any of my services. He didn't understand. This is Michael, my son, and you're a priest now? <laughs> he said you had your own diocese? <laughs> no, Dad, I don't have a diocese. I'm not sure what a diocese is, but nonetheless... Um, Never understood those things, but I did understand how God met him at the point of his death. A few things concerning the passing away, or even our day, but as with God's son, Jesus, all deaths are appointed by God. If I can receive this, then I I can find hope. I can find hope in trusting in God, that if it's truly God, the God that I read of in the Scriptures and has this great magnitude of love for all of humanity, and as I understand all of our lives are hidden in Christ, I I, I see the right that He has in this particular area. And it's not so much a taking away, because from our perspective we see it that way without a doubt, but it's more of a taking unto Himself. 
And again, we have to see that. We have to realize that. That is, all deaths are appointed by God. God is taking them unto himself. He's embracing them into his arms. And again, it's an amazing concept. The hard part is, is our arms are empty, but, but from our empty arms into the filled arms of God go his people. If I can receive this, then I can find peace even in the midst of that hardship. May not understand it as I mourn, but I can mourn in faith and hope in God and what he has done. It's what the Apostle Paul was speaking of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he was speaking of end-time theology. In verse 13 he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, concerning a born-again believer who has died. I don't want you to be ignorant. Because, again, the thing that stood about, and I know this is obvious, but this really hit me at the death of my father was the finality of it all. He's just gone. To this day, when I go and knock on my mother's door, just for a split second, you almost expect him to be there and sitting in his chair or answering the door. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. We will sorrow, but we sorrow and hope in our God. Secondly, the death of a believer... As with Jesus, that death is holy. As tragic as it is, it's holy in the sight of God. In Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord, the death of his saints. That word precious, that word precious means highly valued. So the dying of a person is a very precious, it's a very holy it's, it's an, a, a time that, that God honors. Again, it's that passage that goes from this world into the presence of the Lord. Thirdly, the Bible tells us that the believer, once he does close his eyes here, he does open them in the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, it says, For we are always confident, we can have a confidence in this, Paul is saying, knowing, you can know this, that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That's obvious, but he's using it as a contrast. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And the reason this is necessary, there's some people that speak of something called soul sleep. That when you die, you're kind of in this limbo, if you will. You're sleeping, and one day God's going to wake everybody up, and then at that point that you will be with him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says as soon as we leave this place, we go into the presence of our holy God. We go into his glory. Fourthly, we know that we, as well as those who have preceded us, will have a spiritual body of substance. And I say it that way because when you die, you go into be in the presence of the Lord. It's not, you're not a ghost. You're definitely not an angel. You don't want to be an angel. Angels are ministering spirits. We're more precious in the sight of God than angels are. But we do, we're in a spiritual sense because we have yet to be reunited with these bodies. That's what's being discussed at the time of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I, in some kind of spiritual slash physical form, am in the presence of God. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's not saying that we're going to be gods. It's saying we're going to be in that spiritual form. I can't explain it to you, because the Bible doesn't explain it to me. 
In Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, it says, For I know that my Redeemer lives. So Job has been given some insight here, some revelation here. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, after I die, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So he says, after my skin is destroyed, after this body is destroyed, he's saying, I'm still going to have a physical presence in the sight of God. In this flesh I shall see God, who I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall stand before. So there's going to be this experience of God in some sort of physical form. And I, I, I kind of harp on this because we're not just a vapor, and we're not just some kind of spirit such as smoke that flies in the air. There's something so much more deeper. There's something so much more of substance here. Fifthly, we know that we will experience a loved one again. Now, I kind of, I don't vacillate on this point, but I vacillate on the experience. I look forward to seeing the people who were born again in my family again at, at some point, without a doubt. But just make no mistake about it. It's not like my father's not watching over me because my father's in the presence of Jesus. Do you want to look into this face? Or do you want to look into the face of Christ? I, I pray that he chose, you don't have to say amen. What, what's wrong with my face? Um, no, I agree. I agree fully. But you will experience that loved one again. When, when King David, when he had that illicit affair with Bathsheba, it produced a child. And that child was taken. And David was mourning and he was fasting as that child was sick before that child passed. And they were very concerned about his health. And then the, the baby did go and, and died. And they were really concerned. You know, they're talking between themselves. We're not told exactly what they said, but they're wondering who's going to go tell them. And he saw this, and he perceived what had happened. And so he asked them. And, and, and then response, and his servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You have fasted and wept for the child who is alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. He's going to go to where that child is. And so he's going to experience that loved one again. Now, again, once you're in the presence of Christ, to be absent from the body, present with the Lord, all the other relationships are going to pale in comparison. That is going to be the primary relationship that we have in heaven with our God. And I so look forward to that. But just think of when you really have a blessed time at church, maybe or a small group Bible study, when you have that great fellowship and you go home and just think, man, wasn't it great being at church today? And I'm talking about fellowship with one another. Just think of how that is going to be multiplied when you're in heaven. Because then we're not going to have all the pettinesses that we deal with and all the perceptions and all of those other things that we have to deal with. There's one other thing that the children that have gone on before you will always be your children. We see this in the book of Job, because in Job chapter 1, he lost all of his children. He lost quite a few of other things there as well. But in the last chapter, he was told that he was going to receive double of everything. And in chapter 42, there's a list. And he's going, you know, if you compare the list in chapter 1 and chapter 42, he's receiving double of everything. 
But then it gets to the children. He had seven, and he got seven again. And you think, well, how come he didn't get double the children? Well, it's because the first ones already existed. And the idea is those first ones are still your children. They're just in the presence of God. And so again, this is very broad then. Because, just to get a little personal here, and I've had people come up and tell me this, and... Somebody even just a couple of weeks ago, not related to the scripture, but I gave them the scripture. There, there's people in our church, there might be people sitting here right now in unsafe state or whatever, that had an abortion. Now in the Bible, there's no more tears. And we know that that child within the womb is a child. And, and so that child that has been aborted, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. And if we're going to go and be reunited, then that's the great hope and the magnitude of God's grace. You're going to be with that child. Now, I'm not a woman, and I can't even imagine how it would be to have a life within you, but also the feeling of having terminated that life, and there might be some element of shame to that. But again, this is in heaven. There's no shame in heaven. And again, our sins don't follow us into heaven because they've been washed away. And so do you see the magnitude of the grace of God that is able to overcome that for those people who repent and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? To me, this is huge. Maybe you've had a miscarriage, or man, you dealt with you know, your wife having a miscarriage as well. That child is truly a child, and you're going to experience it again. And so as hard as death is, as ugly as death is, because it's, the basis for death is sin, and it shows us the ugliness of sin. Isn't it amazing the beauty that God has added to it as he has overcome it? And so life, he's come that we would have more abundant life. But as far as our deaths, he's brought it off the charts through his grace and his mercy. Verse 34, you will seek me, speaking to the religious community here, <clears throat> you will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said? You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. That's a good question. It's good that they're wondering that. I hope they stuck around for the answer. Because when Jesus said, You, you will seek me, he's speaking of the Jews. Remember in the Gospel of John, the Jews, when you see that term, the Jews, that refers to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. It refers to that religious community. Now, when he says, you will seek me, the idea behind that is, you will seek me as a Savior. There's going to come a time when you, the religious community, seeks me as a Savior, but where I'm going, you cannot go. We know what putting the Bible together, there's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Those who bow the knee in this life will be rewarded in the next life. Those who bow in the afterlife, and they will bow and all will bow, they will see him as he is, but not in this life. For them, it's going to be too late. In Luke chapter 16, verse 24, the rich man and Lazarus, this be the rich man, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in the flames. The only place that Father Abraham could have led this man was to faith in the Messiah. But the problem with the religious community, who are these guys? They're children of Abraham. 
They're not children of Abraham, as Paul describes in Galatians, as us all being children of Abraham, those who come into the kingdom by faith. But they would describe themselves as uh, children of Abraham because they were Hebrews or because they were Jews. But Abraham, just on that premise, is not going to be able to do anything for them. He's crying out to Father Abraham, but the only thing they should have been seeking Father Abraham for in this life was the promised Messiah. The promised Messiah in which you come into eternal life through faith. And because they refused that, then no, they cannot go where Jesus goes. But now they look on Messiah for salvation because all they will see, though, is judgment. I say, but now, that time when they go to be in heaven, or they go to be at the time after they, they pass from this life. Hebrews nine twenty seven through 28 says, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. It doesn't say to bear the sins of all. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. But these are those who depended upon Father Abraham. But the problem is, Father Abraham, Moses, the prophets, they can't save. Salvation, there's no other name under heaven, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, by which men must be saved. Verse 37, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is to be the last day of that yearly feast of the Feast of Tabernacles. And on that last day, on that last day, there was a tradition that they would do using water. The priest would bring a pitcher of water. He would march around the temple altar singing Psalm 118, verse 25, which says, Save now, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. He would then take the pitcher of water and pour it over the altar, a request for God's future provision based upon his past provision. How does all of this fit together? Well, the Feast of Tabernacles was a feast celebrating God's provision as they wandered through the wilderness. We studied the book of Numbers a few months ago. And so it was memory of them leaving Egypt and how God provided for them all through the wilderness. Specifically, the water enters in was pretty much right after they wandered out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 17, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. Now, when it says wilderness of sin, that has nothing to do with sinful nature or sin, in that this is just an area in the wilderness. According to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidium, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there in the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Maasah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted to the Lord, saying, 
is the Lord among us or not? And so that's the idea behind this timing or this last event of the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a celebration of how God provided water from the rock while they were in the wilderness. Now, that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it has significance here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And so that idea is living waters that have sprung forth from that rock. Now, Jesus is watching this go on back in the temple. He's seeing this, and it's as if he can't contain himself anymore. And so watching it, finally he stands up and cries out, if you want salvation, then believe and receive from me. It's what he's saying here when he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let him receive of that which I have to offer. Psalm 63 verses 1 and 2, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. And so we have this picture of water. I'll read verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Water spoken of in the Bible. Well, refreshing water is the word of God that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Flowing water is the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. Water for washing is simply the Word of God. He says, if any of you, and what he's saying, paraphrasing, if any of you in this spiritual wasteland, so just as Israel was dying of thirst back in Exodus chapter 17, out in that wilderness, these people are all dying of thirst in this wilderness that is the temple of that day, because again, the worship system has been so perverted, If any of you in this spiritual wasteland needs refreshment, he's saying, come to me. And so he's got this audience, this audience that more than likely during this time of festival includes Jews, but also proselytes, which are Gentiles that have come to the the faith of Israel. And notice who he calls, if anyone, if anyone. And we have to be of that mindset, if anyone. Because how many people do you know in your life who are far off from Christ? Maybe even people you have given up on. Have you ever considered yourself an unsaved state? You realize how far off you were from God. And God performed the miracle of salvation in your life. There's nobody that you know that God cannot save. Not that he's going to save everybody, but there's nobody that you know that God cannot save. God desires to save them, but again... God gives man the opportunity to choose which way he shall go. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, appeared for the purpose of them making the consideration. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in Matthew 28, 19, the disciples were told, Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is, is that we go out and everybody is a potential target, if you will. There's opportunity in everybody that you meet, even those people who may seem so far and even so vile. When Christ says to come, he's talking about to believe in faith. To drink is a natural reaction when thirst is present. Again, verse 38. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of this person will flow torrents of water that gushes. From this person, the work of the Holy Spirit will flow. Another way of saying this is you'll become a Christian. Christian means a little Christ. It was a derogatory term at first, but we are pictures of Christ. Now, when was it that that water flowed? That water flowed after Christ was struck. And so we are going to be little rocks of flowing water. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Verse 39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So he'd been speaking in something that is going to happen future tense. And then here he says, those who would receive. And so he makes that point. Salvation had yet to take place because the price for sin had yet to be paid. It says, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. That's a proof of salvation. And so what Jesus is saying in verse 39 is, in keeping with this illustration, the rock has yet to be struck. We know that's about six to eight months away. But when it is struck, you'll see torrents of living water. You'll see people who are filled with the Holy Spirit as proof of their salvation. There's going to be a definite change. There's going to be a notable difference. Verse 40, verse 40 through 44. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division amongst the people because of him. Now some of them had wanted to take him, but no one laid hands upon him. So there's this great division, as there always is. Who was Jesus? You go out on the streets and ask people who Jesus was, you'll get the same thing. He was a prophet. He was a good man. See, if he's just a prophet, if he's just a good man, then they don't have to make the commitment. But if he's God, then there's, they know that there's going to be a decision that is going to be required of them, a decision that they are not desirous of making. Verse 45, Then the officers came to the chief priest. So remember, they had sent them to arrest him. Came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? <laughs> They're wondering, you came back, where's he at? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this guy did. And there should have been that day of your salvation. And it should be as if you were hearing words of life for the very first time. Can you imagine as these guys were hearing Jesus speak, as I said before, and just the power of it, just the power and their authority and their power was rendered inept before the power of God as he was speaking forth that message. It wasn't Christ's time, so they, they had absolutely no choice when you get down to it in the matter. The Pharisees, they, they get... They're just amazed you know, that these men didn't do that. But you've got to understand, these men, what have they been hearing all of their lives from these Sadducees and Pharisees? They've been hearing words of the law. They've been hearing words of judgment. Then they go to Christ, and what are they getting? They're getting those powerful words of grace. These things are new to their ears, and they've gripped their hearts and ministered to their souls. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? 
I, I really believe that John is including, we're going to see Nicodemus here in a minute because Nick did. I, I really believe that Nick got saved. We're not going to go into it. We'll get into it in a couple of chapters. But have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But the crowd does not know, but this crowd does not know the law is accursed. The crowd they're basically saying is ignorant. But these words are going to come back upon them. Verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And so he's speaking from the word of God, but he's also saying, apparently you guys are ignorant too, because this is what you're told in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And then they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Well, that's not true. Jonah arose out of Galilee. There has been a prophet that arose out of Galilee. These men proclaiming to be wise, they're proven to be fools. Anybody that comes against Christ, anybody that tries to kill off Christ will become a fool. Will become a fool. And unfortunately, hell will be populated with a lot of people that have a lot of understanding and learning, but have been very foolish with it. As far as us, we're the foolish things of the world but we'll be the wisest thing who are in heaven. Why? Because that rock was struck, and we came to that rock, and we partook of that living water. And because we partook of that living water, now water flows from our lives. And again, you see that progression from faith to faith to faith, and that water continues to flow until that time that Christ comes back. Verse 53, and everyone went to his own house. And that's, to me, That speaks volumes because I'll just close with this thought. The day that I got saved, there was a bunch of people there. I went down and made an altar call, did the whole thing, and somebody brought me off to the side, and they talked to me and and all of that. But all of that was kind of a blur. But there had to be the time that I came to my own house because it's when I came to my own house, it's when I started putting it together. It's that place that God met me, and it's the place where the construction of a Christian life truly started. There's some people that go to their own house and, okay, I did what I needed to do and think of it no more. But it's those who go to their own house and have that quiet time with Christ because that is truly where the Lord meets us. He meets us in the quiet place, that soft, still voice that ministers to our hearts and, for me, confirmed it all continues to do so even today. Acts 17.30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands men everywhere to repent. Father, we just thank you that we have repented, that you have brought us into your wonderful kingdom, and we just praise you for that, Lord. We praise you, Father, for your goodness and your graciousness. Father, because you sent your Son and he was hung upon that cross, because he was struck, that he was upon that cross and crucified and abused. But Father, he, took the, he, took, he paid the price, he took the punishment for our sins, for all the sins of the world. And now he simply commands all men, all mankind, everywhere, to simply to repent. We need to repent, and we have to come to the one who is able to save our souls. And Lord, again, If we have done that, then we just praise you. As we look at your word, Lord, we just kind of get into it once more. And even as I have studied this before, I I, I even learn more things every time. We come to a greater degree of knowledge of the salvation that you have blessed us with. 
But I just pray for this time right now that I pray that every person here would consider their place with Christ. Where are you with Christ? Do you truly believe that Jesus is your Savior, that he truly died for your sins, that he's God who became incarnate, who took himself flesh upon him so that we would be able to understand and see the glory of God? If you do, then you're responsible before a holy God to make a decision. And the Bible says to not make a decision is to make a decision contrary to Christ. All men will need to make a decision on who Christ is. And so, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed this evening, I just want to make this opportunity. It's an opportunity to make a public declaration for Christ in your life. It's an outward expression of what Christ is doing deep within you. Each and every person here tonight will go to his own house. We'll lay our heads upon our pillows and we'll be alone with our thoughts. And it's during that time that I know I have the most intimate moments with my Lord. But as far as now, everybody that Jesus called, he called in a public manner. And so I'm going to give you this opportunity, this opportunity to make a a reaction to the gospel message that was given and to take that to your bed tonight. And so the outward expression that we use here is just simply the raising of hands. And so if you've seen Christ, Seeing Christ as Savior tonight, you've yet to make a declaration, a public declaration for Christ, raise your hands, and I just simply want to acknowledge the raising of your hand. The Lord has just kind of laid this upon my heart tonight here. Is there anybody that needs to do that? If so, raise your hand up. We're not going to make a spectacle of you. Eyes are closed and heads are bowed, and I'm just going to acknowledge that somebody raised their hand. Is there anybody in this place? Is there anybody at all? Maybe tonight was just for you. Maybe this section of scripture God has given so that you would respond to it. Maybe you're in the overflow. If you are, you can raise your hand there. It's between you and God. But before I close, is there anybody at all? Is there anybody here tonight that God is speaking to? Anybody? Is anybody here who feels like God is speaking to me right now? If you are, respond. Respond. Anybody? Father, everybody here claims to have that relationship with you, and we praise God for that. And so, Lord, we just pray that we would assume the responsibility then of being one of those rocks that spew that living water to this world. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people who are found faithful, and as we are, Lord, that truly, yes, you would bless us on that time that you take us unto yourself. But until that time comes, Father, I just pray that you continue to do a great work within this church and out of this church. Lord, I lift up the women's conference this weekend. I pray that you would bless the ladies of our church. I pray that you would strengthen them. I pray, Father, that you would do a great work through the speakers that time, at, um, at that time. I pray for the time of worship, that it would be intimate. But I also pray, Father, that our ladies would be the ones that take it out into their homes and into this community. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness, Lord that we would glorify you all the waking days that we have, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.